0: when I was 19 I was like palling around LA during a lonely summer and the one friend I had was this like one of these girls who's very like confident and up for anything and so when one of these Scientology street teams was like do you want to take a personality test and invited us to come to the Church of Scientology around the corner we were in Hollywood um I was like oh fuck no and she was like no we have to do it and I was like god damn it all right well Hello and
1: welcome to Miseducated, the show about unlearning the misguided rules from society that govern our lives. With me, your host, Tash Doherty. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Miseducated. I've gone down the cult rabbit hole on YouTube quite a few times, and for a while I was particularly interested in documentaries about polygamous cults, like Mormon fundamentalists in the FLDS. I've been fascinated by how cult leaders are able to subtly and gradually influence their followers' beliefs, whether that be about the world, their family, God, their life purpose, or whether they were pink on Wednesdays. To find out more, I spoke to writer, language scholar, and podcast host, Amanda Montell. Amanda has just written a book called Cultish, which specifically looks at the language of cults. In this episode, we learn all about her dad's experiences growing up in the cult synonon, the linguistic techniques that cults use to influence people, the cult of the patriarchy, and why the phrase boys will be boys is more insidious and problematic than you'd expect. We also trade stories on how Scientology tried to recruit both of us, her in Los Angeles and me when I was in London. And this episode is dedicated to the memory of Laura Johnston Cole, who was a survivor of Jonestown and then who also went on to join the cult Synanon too. So enjoy! Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Miseducated with me, your host, Tash Doherty. And today I've got Amanda Montel, who has written her second book, right? It's getting published in June of 2021, which is very exciting, Cult-ish. So, Amanda, it's great to see you.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I like that little pause in between Cult and Ish, just to emphasize. Full blown cult necessarily? What does that word even mean? But certainly cultish.
1: Exactly. So I was really lucky to receive a copy of the book last week. So yeah, yeah, tell us a bit more about like the origins of cultish, the book.
0: Yeah, the origin of the book really well. It goes how back? How far back do you want to go? Because. I um I grew up on on stories of cults because when my dad was a teenager in the late 60s, he was forced to join one. My dad was fourteen in nineteen sixty-nine when his like absentee, kind of negligent communist father and his dad's new replacement family, his his stepmom and two toddler age half sisters moved on to this. Socialist utopian commune in the Bay Area called Synanon. My dad's dad wanted in on the countercultural movements, you know, of late sixties, and so they moved onto this cult called Synanon, which is a notorious group that, like, true cult diehards have, pro- have probably gone down a rabbit hole researching. But you know, Synanon was one of these like classic compounds where you know there are all these really fucked up arbitrary rules. It had a uh, power-hungry, narcissistic, charismatic leader named Chuck Diedrich, who institutionalized a lot of his madness in the group. It started out as a sort of alternative drug rehabilitation center, but then grew to accommodate so-called lifestylers, people who just wanted in on this like different way of living where children were separated from their parents. No one was allowed to go to school or work outside. It was very like, you know, it was very socialist. It had some things in common with Jonestown. Um, a lot of groups in the late 60s did, but most of them, none of them ever got as far as Jonestown or spiraled as catastrophically as Jonestown, but there were some things in common. Um, but the centerpiece of life in Sinanon was that every night, everyone in the group, no exceptions, had to participate in this ritualistic activity called the Sinanon Game, which sounds maybe fun and playful, but really... It was um, this form of group therapy, at least that's the way it was pitched, where everybody had to gather around in a circle and basically be subjected to hours of vicious personal criticism by their peers. And really, it was a form of social control. And it's one of these cultish techniques that so many abusive leaders from Jim Jones to MLM higher-ups to Jeff Bezos uh, deploy. But yeah, so my dad, though, was 14 when he moved onto this compound. And until that time, he'd actually lived with his mother, single mom, very mentally ill, very poor in Spanish Harlem, New York. So he was like a streetwise kid and also just a skeptic. So he arrived and was like, this is a cult. (laughs) So he spent his four years there laying really low. He escaped every single day to attend a regular school in San Francisco which wasn't allowed, but his dad was like donating money to, his dad was not wealthy by any means, but I guess his dad was like finding a way to funnel money into the cult, into the group. And so the higher ups kind of looked the other way and let my dad attend this real school so that he could get a high school diploma, you know?
1: So like, how did he leave the compound during the day? How did they not figure out that he was in the school? No, 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 they
0: knew, they knew they just looked the other way. He looked the other way. He laid really low. He like hitched a ride in with someone who worked in San Francisco. And he went to Lowell High School, which like, if you're familiar with San Francisco, you might know it, it still exists. But yeah, um, he wanted, you know, a high school accreditation so that he could go to college. And while he was in Synodon, he he wound up like running the place's microbiology lab, which is so random. Like, what does well, a okay.
1: microbiology lab in a cult do? Well, because
0: because like they wanted to avoid mainstream hospitals. So if someone maybe had like a disease or you know, gastrointestinal problems or whatever, somebody needed like their throat cultured. They need someone, they needed someone in Cynadon to do the lab work. Wow. And my dad was interested in science. So he did it. And ironically, Cynadon is where he like fell in love with science. And then my dad got into Berkeley and got his PhD, and now my dad is like a world-renowned neuroscientist. (laughs) But yeah, so I grew up on these stories of Synanon and because I'm so wordy and so interested in language just kind of naturally, I don't know why, some combination of nature and nurture, the most interesting part about Synanon to me was the secret language that they used because there were all these special terms and buzzwords, just like the Synanon game. You know, like what a manipulative way to frame this abusive activity. Um, And there were just so, so many special buzzwords. Sorry, that's my spam. Um, (laughs) So, so many special buzzwords. Like there was this phrase, act as if, just so sinister. It sounds like nothing, but whenever anyone wanted to question or doubt or, you know, just ask, like, inquire about why Synanon did something a certain way or why there was certain a certain policy in place or if they wanted to express that they didn't necessarily believe in something that everyone was doing, the higher-ups or whoever was around would just respond with, oh, act as if. And it was a cue that Chuck Diedrich made up that essentially meant, oh, if you don't believe something, like you have to trust in Chuck Diedrich because he's all-knowing and he's have, he has everybody's best intentions in mind. So if you don't believe in something, just act as if you believe in it and eventually you will. And so it's one of these phrases that I describe in the book. It's called a thought-terminating cliche. Uh, and this was a term that was coined in the late, in the early 50s by the psychologist named Robert J. Lifton. And um, you, you find these throughout cults um, and also in our everyday lives. There are these like stock phrases that are really catchy, easily memorized, easily repeated, and they're aimed at discontinuing rational logic or continued analysis or thought. So in Sinanon, when someone like had a doubt, you would just hear, oh, act as if, and it's like, oh, act as if, okay. And it would like assuage their cognitive, cognitive dissonance, you know, like, yeah. it's uncomfortable to have two conflicting ideas in your mind at the same time, like, oh, I love it here, oh, I believe in synodon, but I'm doubting what I'm hearing right now. When someone just has a phrase, a stock phrase ready to go that makes it so that you don't have to think anymore, that um, is kind of comforting. So you'll find these thought-terminating cliches throughout cultish groups. There are so many of them. And in our everyday Mm -hmm. lives, they exist too. Like boys will be boys is an example of a thought-terminating cliche
1: I'm also thinking of like faith as well in Christianity, you know, you just like, I don't know, keep the faith or something in the sense it's that just like trust in the, yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: On in God's plan, yeah. yeah. These are thought terminating cliches and they, they feel soothing to people, but they're really quite dangerous. So I grew up on these stories of Synanon and as someone who is obsessed with language, you know, I like moved through the world. And of course, as the daughter of like atheist scientists, My mom is a very successful scientist as well. Excellent.
1: Love a family of
0: scientists. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, as like the daughter of scientists, you know, Mm. I grew up very curious and skeptical.
1: Yeah. Uh, So when you were growing up, when your dad was talking about, because Miss Educator, we're looking a lot about like unlearning, right? So what I'm fascinated by is the life for your dad or these other people post cult experience as well for those that made it out of the not so crazy you know uh, revolutionary suicide groups and stuff so I'm wondering like when your dad was telling you these stories what was his attitude towards it was he like oh like you know it's same with this fascination of like these people were crazy and like this is what I believed or this is what I didn't believe like how did that go down
0: yeah well you know what's funny is that there are so many myths surrounding the type of people that wind up in cults or the effect that being in a cult can have on someone, whatever. But what I've found, you know, the prevailing wisdom will tell you that people who wind up in cults are desperate, disturbed, naive. You get out of a cult, you're fucked for life. You know, that those are the ideas that are propagated in the media and such. And of course, like cult experiences can be extremely traumatic and can fuck you for life. <laughs> but what I've found from every, cult survivor I've spoken to for this book and definitely my dad whether or not they joined as a kid whether or not they were forced to join as a kid or whether they joined on their own and no one like knowingly joins a terrible group right like you join thinking this is going to be something great but all of these people have this incredible sense of optimism sometimes to their detriment I mean this is this is this consistent character trait that i find in people who like join these cultish groups as adults is that it's not that they're desperate or disturbed or intellectually deficient in fact th- a lot of them are really really smart and cults don't want to go after people with like psychological abnormalities or or you know low intelligence because you know they want like the brightest most capable like richest most valuable, quote unquote, people as a part of their group, but if you're too idealistic, then it can kind of keep you in this group longer. sunk Sunk cost fallacy can kind of kick in in a more extreme way because you just have this faith that like this group, this person has the capacity to like heal the world's problems or heal my problems.
1: Yeah, or you've been um, fo- in, in it for 18 years or something. You know, yeah. you've, spent, you've committed so much of your life and your, like, energy and money or whatever it is to this thing.
0: And if you're, and what social scientists find is that, like, pessimism and bad moods actually, like, protect people from fraud and scams, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But obviously my dad did not join on his own and would have left earlier if he could. But for some reason, like he has this quality in common with even people who did join on their own, which is just this like wide-eyed optimism. And I think like as much as it can get someone into a cultish group, and I say this in, in the book, it can help someone get out because you just know, like you just have your chin up, like I will get out of this. So I don't think my dad has like processed any of his extremely bizarre childhood in therapy or anything, you know, he's a boomer. They, you know, they have a lot. Boomers
1: of- go to therapy. That's all I'm gonna say.
0: Yeah, or at least the boomers I know need to go to therapy. Yeah. So I don't think he's processed it formally, but whenever he told me these stories growing up, it was like with wonder. It was like, and he's very animated. Like I get some personality traits from him, obviously. And um, we both love telling stories and his face was just like light up, you know, like not like he was proud of it or anything like that. Definitely not. But it was just kind of like, like, let me spin you a tale, like listen to this. And his childhood from start to finish was so fucking weird that it was just like, oh, here's another chapter in the story. You know, like I was in a cult. Um, wow. But yeah, no, he's very optimistic about it. And it's like what helped him get out of it sort of unscathed, I guess, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, unscathed, and physically. But yeah, no, he, he told them with this just like wide-eyed curiosity as if he was kind of listening to these stories for the first time as well, because I don't think he told them to anyone before he like told them to his kids. And I would constantly beg my dad to tell me stories, like any car ride. I'd be like, tell me a story, not a story like make up a story about princesses. I would be like, tell me a story from your life which is probably why I'm now, why I became obsessed with nonfiction.
1: That's awesome. And then were there aspects of it, do you think for him personally, that he still needs to unlearn, right? Because that's a really formative time in your life to be in this kind of environment. And for example, I can imagine getting subjected to a lot of like personal criticism is like not the most mentally healthy thing to have happen to you, so.
0: Yeah, well, again, like he had lived in New York City, like the School of Hard Knocks, up until the age of 14 when he joined, was forced to join, coerced to join, whatever. So he kind of had like a constant eyebrow raised in skepticism. And what's interesting is that there were friends of his who also were like forced to join by their parents who at the beginning were like, fuck this, this is all bullshit. But by the end, like they were like, you know, I can't get out of this. I, I don't know, some psychological pressure was at play. And they, it was like, if I can't beat them, join them type of situation. And by the end, they kind of bought it. Because of course, like there were some good things about Sinanon, that's what toxic relationships are, whether you're in a toxic one-on-one relationship or a toxic relationship with a cult, like there's always some good to justify all the abuse. And so some of his friends really did acquire some some fucked up <laughs> like ideologies <laughs> while and they what were, were there. The,
1: what were the good parts of it, would you say?
0: I mean, I think like communal living can be a positive thing for people. We as humans are like biologically, physiologically meant for community. Um, We're really bad at being alone. (laughs) And I think, you know, like nobody went hungry. Everybody had their like base needs taken care of. There were like beautiful friendships that sprouted incident on I'm really reaching here uh
1: well it's like your entire life is in this space right so
0: yeah and here's another wild thing is that um, for my book I interviewed um, a Jonestown survivor this woman named Laura Johnston Cole I interviewed a few Jonestown survivors but she was the one that really stuck out to me because she survived the massacre in 1978. But you'd think that narrowly escaping the most notorious cult tragedy of all time would kind of turn a person off to cults forever, but she actually went ahead and joined another cultish group, Synanon. And so I didn't know this when I reached out to her and it was just this weird coincidence that this was a few years after my dad had left. So they didn't overlap, that would have been insane. But yeah, she like went from the frying pan into the fire and because she just like loves communal living and she wants to be surrounded by people who are really different than she is. You know, like we get into our neighborhoods, our, our circles of people that we work with, our friends, or whatever, and it can get really insular, you know, and you don't, you're not surrounded by people from every different walk of life. And that's what, these, that's what these communes provide is like you get access to a lot of different people. I mean, a lot of these new age groups, they're very white. They're very, very white. Although in Cynon, they still had um, addicts who they called dope fiends. Um, and they were not all white. So you were you were surrounded by people who were very different from you, had different lives. You know, Laura Johnston Cole was someone who grew up middle class, went to college, you know, all this stuff. And that's why she likes these groups, is because she wants to live in a community that's a mix of all races, socioeconomic levels, backgrounds, whatever. So yeah, that just shows how idealistic she was. She was like, oh, surely this this commune will be fine. And, you know, luckily Chuck DeBrick was sort of like dethroned and arrested and all the stuff before a Jonestown-esque tragedy ever happened. Although a lot of trauma happened. And my aunts, my like my dad's two half sisters, they were really little when they were in Cinnadon. So like in a way, they're kind of more fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, they they didn't know any better and they had to go to the Synodon school. But I will say this: like, my dad, and this is not just because of the cults, this is because of my dad's whole childhood. Like, he is so conditioned to think that he's like alone in the world because he's like always been the odd one out, you know, like he had to take care of himself because his mother was incapable of that. And then he really had to take care of himself in the in the cults, whatever. He's so conditioned to think, like, I'm alone in the world and, like, nobody will be proud of me and, like, nobody is going to celebrate me, you know, like, which is really sad because he's such, like, an adorable man. But, like, that he, he can come across as kind of, like, braggardly. Is mm. that the word? He can come across as a bit braggadocious. There we go. Right. Some stuff. <laughs> because he had to learn from a young age to like be his own hype man mm. you know like you're gonna get through this Craig that's his name <laughs> you're, gonna get this, Craig. you're gonna get through this like destitute early childhood in like a rat infested studio apartment in New York and so even now he's always the first to be like that was my idea mm. <laughs> and as like a white man as like a middle-aged white man that's not always like the most flattering trait
1: <laughs> right so
0: that's kind of something he's had to unlearn because his background is so crazy
1: <laughs> oh my god and then i'm imagining you know for his half sisters go- joining younger because if your dad would join when he was 14 when he was 18 or you know an adult he could just leave right so four years is not that long but I'm guessing that they just stayed until they became adults. Well, actually,
0: luckily they left. So Synodon collapsed in, oh, I want to say 1980 or so. But they left long before then. And I don't actually remember the story of how they left. Because my dad was like, he was gone. He was in college. But my aunts did not spend their whole childhood there. No, thank God. They moved to the Bay Area to San Francisco when they were, I wanna say like elementary, later elementary school years. Yeah, But still, those are some really formative years, like Damn. between the age of like four and nine or whatever.
1: Also, cause you're learning language then too, right? Still. So that's really interesting. Cause that's really- Oh uh, yeah, you know, I
0: interviewed, I interviewed one of my aunts for the book and I asked her like, is there anything left over from Synanon that you still say? And that's a really difficult question because when language comes so naturally to you, as it comes to us all, you're not sitting around analyzing it unless you're me. (laughs) But it was like really hard for her to think. I think she might still call addicts dope fiends. That's so strange. I mean, it's interesting. Language is such manipulating one's language in order to cajole their points of view, their beliefs, their ideologies is so clever and necessary, first of all, because language is how we make sense of the world. Like without language, there are no beliefs, there are no cults, but it is so very clever because language is one of the first things we're willing to pick up. And also one of the last things we're willing to let go. Like you're not shaving your head. You're not even changing your outfit. You're not moving to some commune. You're just, you know, picking up a new term. And right. so it feels seemingly commitment free and harmless, but it's it's not, it's really not, it's everything. It's how yeah. these ideologies are instilled. And then even years and years later, like after you strip off the uniform, let your hair grow back, move away, whatever it is, the language is still with you. And I remember interviewing a Heaven's Gate survivor, this guy, Frank Lifford, who some people who watch the Heaven's Gate, Heaven's Gate documentary will recognize, who like, 20 years after defecting from Heaven's Gate, still refers to Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles, the leaders, as Tien Do, which were their mm-hmm. cult names, and he still refers to death or suicide as leaving Earth, which was one of the euphemisms that they used in the cult, um, and so many other terms. So language is like, while people are distracted by all like the flashy cult iconography and whatever what we end up missing is that the most dangerous part of cult influence is something we can't see at all
1: yeah that is so deeply fascinating and what I also loved from reading you know different parts of your book was how how did you get in touch with all of these people like you literally interviewed you were like, oh, another Jonestown survivor. And I'm like, whoa, this is absolutely insane. Like as somebody who has gone down the cult rabbit hole many a time, it actually blew my mind that you had met these people. And then also you went to the Scientology building yourself and I was just in LA a couple of weeks ago. And I also almost got, I mean, I was, luckily when I was approached by the Scientology people, I was on Tottenham Court Road in London. And at the time, I think I was 16 years old. So luckily I told them my age and then they were like, holy shit, we can't have a 16 year old in here. You have to be of like adult age. And that's how I was able to leave. But after, that was only after watching like half an hour of like really nice propaganda videos. Yeah. And you talk about this in your book too, where you're just like, What did you decide to go to Scientology, the Scientology Center just for kicks or like, how did you oh end up there? Oh my God, well,
0: I tell the story in the book. When I was 19, I was like palling around LA during a lonely summer when I had no friends and was just here fucking around. And the one friend I had was this, like one of these girls who's very like confident and up for anything. And so when one of these Scientology street teams was like, do you want to take a personality test? And invited us to come to the church of Scientology around the corner. We were in Hollywood. Um, I was like, oh fuck no. And she was like, no, we have to do it. And I was like, God damn it. All right. Well, I'll do it for the story. And lo and behold, I'm glad I did because I got to include it in the book. But Yeah. yeah, it was a really fucked up experience. And I was the one who had to get us out of there because I think she just would have stuck around for hours and hours. Yeah. Um,
1: but also, if you haven't seen the Scientology building in LA, it is this, I don't know, I want to say like 15 story bright blue with like kind of gold, strange. And then also it has like the term Scientology goes across the top of the building, almost like the Hollywood yeah. sign in this kind of cracked, peeled. It's really, really a strange building to look at. Like yeah, you can't, you can't wh- avoid it. It
0: is is—it is bizarre building. It's like a very beautiful cornflower blue. Um, It's got like a Grecian... Facade sort of on the outside, it's 477,000 square feet. Uh, So it's really big. And this is kind of off topic, but when the election was going on and I was on one of these sites where you can see like what neighborhoods are blue and what neighborhoods are red, LA is a very blue town, obviously. There's a pocket of red in Beverly Hills slash Bel Air. And then there was this random triangle in East Hollywood that was bright red. And I zoomed in and zoomed in and zoomed in and it was the Scientology building. Uh,
1: those Republicans, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> yes, well
0: Oh yeah, Trumpists
1: Stephen. yeah. Was. Yeah, the Trump supporters, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I, how did I interview all these people? I mean, cult survivors are really generous. They want to tell their stories, you mm. know, like, and it's not like I was reaching out to people who'd never done press before, like, you just, you look these people up, you see who've done podcasts, who've done press. And if they've done a bunch of press before, odds are they'd be willing to talk to me. And for some of the cult survivors, it was a little bit harder. Like for Scientology, it's really hard to get ex-Scientologists to talk. So Apart from
1: I just, um, that actress, Leah, Leah Remini. Remini yeah, yeah, she's really cool. But <laughs>
0: largely it's hard to get ex-Scientologists to talk. So I just looked up Scientologists who have already spoken very publicly about it. Um, and it was fine because I'm not just telling their story as they've told it before. I'm telling it from this new angle. And what was really validating is that on so many of the interviews that I did, the cult survivors would tell me, you know, like I've told this story so many times, but never like this Mm -hmm. because nobody Mm -hmm. ever wants to know, like, what were these techniques of influence You know, everybody's just like, what was the sensationalized story of your experience? Oh my God, that's so fucked up. You did this, you did this. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, I want all those juicy details, of course. I want it to be a riveting book. I want it to feel narrative. I want it to feel suspenseful and thrilling. But more importantly, I want to provide a satisfying explanation for what causes people to join fanatical fringe groups, what makes them stay. And language is the answer. And so that you know, them having the opportunity to talk about all this language and how it worked to influence them was kind of like a first. And that made me feel good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that is awesome as well, because it is such a, I mean, especially with YouTube and stuff too, is that and you talk about this in the beginning of the book. It's like, why is there this endless, bottomless fascination with these topics? But actually, it's really... It, you just you need know, to think about it in terms of evolving as well. And that's one thing I found really interesting from the story about Jonestown from like People's Temple. is that like, It didn't start off as this, like, okay, let's all move to Guyana and then like, commit suicide together. Oh, yeah. No, it starts with, like, a nice integrated church. And then it, like, evolves. And then they move around. And then their leaders become slightly older and crazier and more fanatical. And then it's like, okay...
0: Yeah. I mean, my dad lived in San Francisco in the late seventies and he remembers Jim Jones was a neighborhood figure. He had connections to all the right people. Angela Davis, the Black Panthers, you know, he knew all of these like progressive anti-racist figures because he was very smart. He was, he was unique. A lot of cult leaders are not these brilliant masterminds. They're opportunists. They rip people off you know um well Jim Jones was an opportunist too for sure but he he was really smart and he was an expert code switcher you know he could get on anybody's linguistic level and a lot of cult leaders aren't as widely read and don't have that talent so he was very he was one of the kind, I must say but yeah so anyway conducting all the interviews was was really cool and it was it was amazing to have the conversations and Laura Johnston Cole actually she had cancer when I interviewed her and I intervie- I interviewed her a bunch of times because of the Synanon connection. Like mm-hmm. it was wild. She was still in touch with some of the people that she knew from her Synanon days. And we were like comparing glossaries because she was interested in remembering all the terms she used back in the day too. And I think I was the last person to interview her because mm-hmm. sadly she passed away from cancer like a few weeks after our last correspondence. So I'm like, whoa, I like really have to memorialize her like in a- whoa in an empathetic way but yeah I mean that's the other thing is that a lot of the times like you were asking where does this fascination with all these cult Mm -hmm. stories come from and I don't think it's that there's some like twisted voyeur inside of us that's just inexplicably attracted to darkness I think in a lot of ways we're like rubbernecking like we're scanning for threats to figure out whether or not these groups are a threat to us and the truth is that they kind of are. <laughs> um, cultish yeah. influences everywhere, and that's what the book is about. And it's not that just anyone could fall into a Synanon or a Jonestown. That's not it at all. And I talk about that too in the book. Mm. But but cultish influence is all around us. And something we tend to do is like we we us them cult followers, just like cult followers us them us. You know, <laughs> like that. That was a really odd way of phrasing. Yeah, that, but I there's an us sense.
1: and then there's a them, right? Yeah, and yeah. so we
0: think like oh, they're cult followers. They're brainwashed. Like they're not like us, but they are. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and what's what's influencing them and what's motivating them are these like really deeply human things like confirmation bias and sunk cost fallacy and cognitive dissonance, you know, the, the desire not to want to experience that. And cultish influence is not binary. It's not like you're in a cult or you're not in a cult. These techniques of cultish manipulation are in our Cycle Studios. Oh, yeah. Like, even from reading your book,
1: I started really thinking about when I joined the company that I work for right now, they had all these different terms. It's like the abbreviations. And then they have all these ERGs on the Slack channel. And it's kind of even getting into any, like, scientific field or something, right? Where it's like, you have all these terms, I don't know, like PNP, advertising data, or like... The line of business is like these are in my day job is like all the things that I do, and yeah, it's well.
0: Here's the here's the distinction in in every field, in every like technical field, you need specialized jargon in order to communicate more specifically and efficiently. Like you need the terminology in order to make communication easier. But cultish language does just the opposite. It's there to obscure meanings. It's there to make communication hazier and more nebulous in order to kind of gaslight people. And you'll see that in cultish corporate environments when there are all these corporate buzzwords that don't mean shit and slogans and, and mantras and sing songs. And a lot of employees use them even though they don't know what they're saying just because they want to be accepted or they want to access opportunities. I witnessed that in the jobs where I worked and that's why I can't have a corporate job because I'm such like (laughs) I'm I'm just a brat or and also just a skeptic and I'll be like I'll just refuse to use the terminology and then be clocked as misbehaved and
1: yeah and scolded for having uh, your own independent thoughts and being ostracized from other people and then it's really crazy though because ugh, when you say like boys will be boys and stuff, it just makes me wonder if the patriarchy is also a cult, you know, in oh, general. Patriarchy
0: is a cult. Actually, yeah. I, yes, I want to make cultish merch and yes. I want to make like t-shirts and sweatshirts and stuff that say like the patriarchy is a cult, capitalism is a cult, whatever. I think people, Instagram is a cult. <laughs> I yeah. think people would, like, would buy those.
1: <laughs> but I think the what you were saying earlier was really important, which is like, and I, I like that you said it. how these people who are in cults are no different from us. We are just constantly scanning for threats, right? In our environment and like the way that we could potentially fall into these traps. And what I think is great about like keeping these stories alive and even memorializing um, the survivor that you talk to is the more we keep it fresh in our mind, the less likely it is that this will actually happen again. And we can just be more vigilant right in our environment, whether it's soul cycle people saying a phrase that really brings two to us. Um, so, yeah, yeah,
0: no, and I think I think the the way that these stories are told is really important because after the Jonestown tragedy or after any tragedy, like after the Nexium stuff came out, exactly. you know the the media will put out all these sensationalized headlines, like, Keith Raniere used sex to brainwash women, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, brainwashing, spoiler alert, is a metaphor and a pseudoscientific concept. And it's one that social scientists and scholars of new religions and psychologists don't even use. It's not... Real. What's what's actually if if brain first of all, brainwashing doesn't meet the criteria of the scientific method and that it isn't controvertible. You can't prove that brainwashing doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Also, if brainwashing were real, if it were just that easy to like unscrew somebody's skull and wash their brain with a number of techniques or whatever you would see way more evil people running around trying to carry out reprehensible schemes. Right now, I'm quoting the work of Rebecca Moore, who is a religion scholar, who has an amazing article called The Brainwashing Myth that people should look up. But yeah, like brain, brainwashing is not what's going on. And when we say like, oh, they're brainwashed, that can serve as another thought-terminating cliché or another piece of us-them messaging. Especially
1: when it's like women, like the vulnerable ones to be like, oh, she was, maybe she was like hysterical or she was lost in her life and she needed the guide of like a strong and attractive and intelligent and charming man. And you mentioned that as well, we're programmed to believe and understand the language of like middle-aged white men, right? So it's like this preconditioning that's kind of happening as well. Yeah,
0: I mean, the sound of middle-aged white man's voice is our default sound authority, according to uh, the cult of the patriarchy. Right. So when a white man gets up on a podium, middle-aged white man, usually bald, gets up on a podium and starts orating confidently about God and government, we're likely to trust him by default. And that can get scary because look at history's cult leaders, Keith Raniere, Marshall Applewhite, Jim Jones, Jeff Bezos, to a lesser degree, <laughs> Again, Chip Wilson, the founder of Lululemon. I was just doing an Instagram live yesterday on the cult of Lululemon. Greg Glassman, the founder of CrossFit. Like all these cults and cultish groups are founded by dudes who look like they could be first cousins. (laughs) (laughs) Like the most dangerous person you could possibly interact with is a middle-aged cisgender white dude.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That was there. (laughs) So be careful. No, I actually think there's something about it there because... I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I also know a certain number of, like, slightly shorter, bald, middle-aged white dudes. And it's almost like they have something to prove. I don't know what it is, but, like, maybe they want, like, <laughs> Napoleon the fascination. Complex. Exactly. I actually th- I do really think that has something to do with it. Like, I'm not even I saying. actually
0: joke that I have a Napoleon complex <laughs> because I am only 5'1", but I'm really loud. they <laughs> not loud, but I'm chatty. I like right. to uh, express my opinions, so I joke that I have an Napoleon complex. But <laughs> yeah, the jury's out on whether or not I'll be starting my own cult. We'll see.
1: Right. But I do think what has been really great is that you have opened our eyes to the influences of other people and the language that they're using and how it's actually affecting us. And that's some real, real interesting and potentially fucked up shit that's happening. So... put Well put. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I think we we touched on a lot of the most important parts and I'm really glad that you could tell the story of your dad because I think it makes it so much more personal and I think also people never really talk about the lives of people who have previously been in cults and how they came out of that and managed to get on with their lives and what they took away with them and how they just ended up back as normal people like us. Yeah. But, you know, with like code switching and all these phrases and terms and things that people will have, it's just great to put some more social psychology around it and like actually understand that these are real strategies that these people are implementing to to influence us and you know well
0: thanks for perfectly understanding what I'm going for
1: (laughs) (laughs) you're welcome but yeah I'm really glad that you wrote it because I also am really fascinated by cults and um it's just, it feels more intellectual when I'm reading a book about it rather than when I'm just like binge watching YouTube videos and I'm actually like <laughs> learning things. So well, so thank you for that. Just,
0: writing this book was just an excuse to like do what I would be doing in my free time, AKA binge watching YouTube videos, but like have something to show for it. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. You definitely do. It's got a beautiful cover page, I think really. And the design reminds me of this 1960s, you know, everyone's on Hey Ashbury, like doing acid or something trips.
0: Oh, great. Well, I mean, thank you for noticing the cover. Um, I had a very specific image in mind. And normally, I guess the author of a book doesn't get that much say in what their cover looks like. But I was kind of a bridezilla with the cover and sent... A mood board way in advance and like buzzwords i was like i want it to be groovy but fresh bright and colorful but with elements of darkness you know because that's what the book is like i'm talking yeah. about this wide spectrum of cultish groups not just the jonestowns and the heaven's gates and the scientologies but also the MLMs and pyramid schemes, the fitness studios, the Instagram gurus that may or may not be pernicious. And so I wanted to make sure that the cover represented this wide spectrum of moods and tones. And because it's not all, I mean, the way that I tend to write is like, I I write about serious subjects, you know, sociology, psychology, linguistics, but I bring like a very, I think, fresh youthful, (laughs) perspective to it um I'm not a PhD which I think works to my favor but anyway um yeah and so many covers came in that looks like not right <laughs> and the designer was like a real trooper because I was like oh no there's too much orange like <laughs> yeah so but I'm I'm so happy with the cover like there's this black and white illustrated UFO on it, juxtaposed with these like bright bands of swirly psychedelic primary colors. and
1: Definitely. Well, thanks so much, Amanda, for coming on the show. It was really great to chat to you.
0: Thanks for having me. You know, I never get sick of talking about cults. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Lots of love. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Miseducated. I really hope you enjoyed the show and if you did, share it with a friend. You can find Amanda's book, Cultish, on Amazon and follow her Instagram for more incredible content about cults. I'm loving it already. I hope you all have a lovely rest of your day. Enjoy the big world out there. Look after yourselves and I hope you'll be back soon. Lots of love. Bye.